Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Right on Mississippi. We are produced with the Mississippi Book Festival and MPB which is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. And today we are with Antoine Wilson, and he is the author of his newest book, Mouth to Mouth, which is put out by Avid Press, which is published by Simon & Schuster, is an imprint of Simon & Schuster. So thank you so much for joining us, Antoine. Thanks for having me here in in person in Mississippi. It's very exciting to be here. Well, as we were saying earlier, you are our uh, maiden voyage on getting back to in-person podcast, and I am thrilled that it is for this book. Um, As I was telling you a little while ago, I went into my local uh, indie bookstore mm, shortly before this book came out, and everyone in Lemuria was positively abuzz about this book. I was like, well, y'all have to let me borrow a copy so I can see what this is all about. And if I had not been packing up all my family's worldly possessions, I would have read it in one sitting and then lamented that it was over so quickly. So I did get to stretch it out for about a day and a half. So I know... We would love for you to read a small portion Mm -hmm. of it, and then we can get into talking about this incredible novel that you have written. Okay. Yeah, so um, it's called Mouth to Mouth, and basically uh, the setup is the uh, sort of unnamed narrator is a writer, and he's stuck at JFK Airport on a flight delay, and he bumps into somebody he knew back at UCLA uh, almost two decades before, and that guy is now a fancy art dealer, and he invites our narrator up to the first-class lounge to basically unspool the story of his rise and how he got to where he is today. And that story begins with his saving someone from drowning on the beach in Santa Monica. So I'm going to read about a little five-minute section here. Um, and it starts with, I guess, background. Jeff, Jeff is out of college, and he's been broken up with by his uh, girlfriend. He's heartbroken. He's woken up in the in the early, early pre-dawn with the whistling of his own nose. He thought it was her in bed with him, and he's <laughs> he wakes up very disappointed and depressed. And so he goes to the beach to look at the horizon. Um, and there he sees what at first seems maybe like some floating kelp, but he sees a floating uh, body. And um, here he goes. He hadn't yet faced a moment like this in his life, one in which he knew with certainty that the crisis at hand was his alone to deal with, one during which he wished for the intercession of the God he didn't believe in, or anyone who might know what to do, or even someone as clueless and panicked as himself who could by their presence share the burden. It was one of those crucial moments, one which when reflected on wouldn't be laughed off but would send a chill up his spine, because even if he felt that he had no choice, that anyone would have done what he did in that situation, he would have to acknowledge that he was being tested because in truth he could have given up, could have despaired, could have walked away, could have pretended he hadn't seen what he'd seen, could have subtracted himself from the scenario, told himself that he wasn't even there, that he'd left a moment too early or arrived a moment too late, that the predicament had not in fact fallen in his lap but only grazed him as it passed undisturbed and unaddressed, left to unfold by itself as nature might have intended. I pointed out that one's interceding or not could equally represent fate, 
that letting nature take its course could include any number of interventions since we ourselves were inseparable from nature. He considered this for a moment, seemed about to reply, and sipped his beer instead. The water was so cold, he continued, after he'd polished off the beer and fetched another, that it took his breath away. He felt like he was unable to get enough air into his lungs. Nevertheless, he made for the body, stomping through the shallows in his underwear and t-shirt and then swimming, thinking that the man was probably okay, that he was being foolish, that the man would pop his head up at any moment and bring to an end what would forever become an embarrassing story about Jeff's tendency to jump to conclusions, to act before considering consequences. These thoughts alternated round Robin with others, equally powerful and clear, that this man was dead and had been dead a long time and was only drifting to shore. But hadn't he seen an arm slap the water? The cold bit into his hands and feet, and though he swam with his head up, he tasted seawater with every stroke. When he reached the body, he hesitated to touch it. What if it sprang to life and dragged him down with the last of its energy, as drowning people were said to do? He took hold of his shoulder and tried to flip the man onto his back, but without being able to touch the bottom, he couldn't get the leverage he needed. He grabbed the man's hand and towed him the short distance to shore, swimming an awkward one-armed breaststroke, scanning the beach for anyone he could call on for help. At the inshore ditch, he went underwater and shoved the body from below, using a ripple of swell to propel it onto the sand. It rolled, came to rest on its back, limbs folded awkwardly as if it had fallen from a height. He stood before it, a middle-aged man in a slick swimmer's wetsuit, tinted goggles, bluish skin, purple lips. He had thought of him as both a he and an it, a man and a body, but now the form on the sand had resolved into a human being, a he, definitively. No sign of breathing, and he had no idea how to take a pulse. He didn't dare remove the goggles for fear of revealing eyes wide open but unseeing. He dragged him away from the water's edge, wavelets erasing the track he left in the sand. The jogger was closer now but not yet upon them. The closest telephone was at the beach lot. If he had run back then to dial 911, could anyone have blamed him? He had seen CPR on television but had no idea how it was really done. He put his hands on the man's chest, locked his elbows and pumped. The sternum felt like a spring-loaded plate. Water leaked from the side of the man's slack mouth. He counted the compressions uselessly, not knowing when to stop. He knew what came next and didn't hesitate. The lips were cold, the stubble rough. He blew into the man's mouth and water sprayed onto his cheek. He had neglected to pinch the nose. The chest rose and fell with his breath, but only as a bellows fills and empties. The skin looked no less blue. A feeling of disgust threatened to overtake him, spurred by the idea that he wouldn't be able to save this man, meaning he wasn't breathing air into a human being who needed help, but into a corpse. The jogger appeared, stopping in her tracks 20 feet away. He cried at her to get help, and she ran toward the highway. He returned to pumping the chest. Something cracked under the heel of his hand, and with each subsequent compression he could feel the break in the bone. Salt water poured thick and foamy from the man's mouth. Nobody would have blamed Jeff for giving up. He wiped the foam aside with the back of his hand and breathed for the swimmer again, trying not to retch. Then to the sternum, the compressions, trying to put out of his mind the feeling of bone scraping against bone. A seagull stood in the sand not five feet away, watching, 
its eye black like a wet seed. I think I'll stop there. I mean, I'm just squirming in my seat over here having you read that out loud. I mean, I've read it, but frankly, I had blocked out the section about bone. I love anything kind of gruesome, but there's something about bone, but you, I've never given CPR before, and much like Jeff, I would just have to go at it after what I've seen on television. I hope that I would react in that way if I saw something like that happening, and I feel like I probably would. Mm -hmm. But it is such a fantastic jumping-off point for this story. I want to talk to you a little bit about how you structured this story, because going into it, I'm thinking it's going to be a story about this unnamed narrator. Well, then it's totally not. It is a story within a story. And it creates a certain amount of tension, I found, and I'm almost 100% certain that you planned for that. So tell us a little bit, you know, how you structured the story and if it was your original envision for how this would play out. Right. Well, yeah, sure. No, this was exactly how I envisioned it, and I wrote the whole thing in two weeks. I'm just kidding. It took like 10 years, <laughs> and, and it went through a million different versions. Um, you know, the, the original inspiration for this was um, this is – Maybe the ur seed for this book was uh, back in '97. I was visiting Seattle with some friends, and I actually uh, we were down by the waterfront, mm-hmm. and I saw this guy walking along, and he was just air drumming, you know, his head in the air, eyes kind of closed, and um, there was a freight train uh, coming, sort of perpendicular to him, and they were on a collision course. Oh my gosh! I know. So I stopped this guy. I got his attention, and I stopped him. And he's looking back at me, and then whoosh, the train goes by, and he looks at me and he just goes, oh my God, you saved my life. I'm gonna buy you a big steak dinner. And then the, right, then the train. Did you get the steak? No, of course not. The the train goes by and he just keeps air drumming down the waterfront. So my friends made fun of me for a million years about not getting my steak dinner. And about 10 years ago, I was playing with the idea of a rescuer and a rescued person kind of narrative and the steak dinner was sort of my jumping off point. What What is owed to what, somebody? It does beg the question, like, yeah, yeah. what do you do for somebody that saves their life? So, yeah, so I had Jeff's, the bones of Jeff's story sort of started from there. And then uh, more recently, I just kept hitting a wall with Jeff's story. And I was working on a, another novel, the sort of sacrificial twin to this one. <laughs> and I kept serially abandoning them. The and parasitic twin. The parasitic twin, yeah. totally. And... Um, Maybe this is the parasitic twin. This is the one that survived in exactly. any case. And uh, so I, I just couldn't find the right form for Jeff's story until I realized that I wanted him to be telling it to uh, an you know interlocutor, a, a narrator figure. Well, I'm sure a thousand people have, you know, all the people you've made, you know, had this conversation with have made the Tom Ripley kind of yeah, comparison, sure. which is uh, very interesting to me. Um, So, and then I was going to ask how long it took you to write this novel, because while it is a short novel, there is, and I'm not just, you know, saying this, it is kind of, it is perfectly executed, and it's very succinct. It doesn't waste, nothing is Mm. wasted in this novel. And so I think that would take an incredibly long time Mm -hmm. to edit that down for it to be kind of in its purest form and 
there's there's no point in this novel where you're slogging through like unnecessary information. Every single word is necessary in this novel, and it is so powerful. And there's so much kind of, I mean, I was basically biting my fingernails because you feel something coming mm-hmm. the whole time. I, and maybe this is wrong. Is it? I mean, it is like a thriller, but a very elevated literary thriller, um, which is certainly a thing. I mean, I love a literary thriller. Mm -hmm. And this just had me on the edge of my seat. Because like I said, there is that tension that you planned for in the structure and the narrative, how it flowed. Um, So 10 years, it took you 10 years. Yeah, thereabouts. I I mean, 10 years from the, the, yeah, the first putting words down. Although... The, the first pages of the book have the sort of name over the intercom mm-hmm. and then and also this image of seeing uh, fireworks from an airplane from above. It's just this gratuitous image on the first place, page. And uh, so, sometime after I turned the book in, I was just looking through some files on my computer and I found this file, air, airportstory.txt. And I was like, what is that? And there there it was, like the name being called over the intercom, the I remember this person, and the fireworks image. And they were just sitting there in something I'd scribbled in January of 2001. Oh, so, my gosh. So, you know, these things, even while you're working on other stuff, these things bounce around in your head. So it's it, more than any other thing I've written, it's hard to say how long this took. It was just sitting there waiting for you. Yeah, yeah, and it was sort of on and off, you know, over the past um, years. But the the distillation process, there are lines in this book that represent, you know, 10,000 words or something um, of exploration that then just ended up being just a little aligned because I I did spend um, quite a bit of energy and effort, I guess, uh, trying to compress it to to, so that it would be, everything would be necessary. And um, maybe... My greatest strength as a writer is like cleaning up my mess after I'm done. So like I kind of paint the floor and then walk out the walk out the door. Well, I mean, that's a I would think that's a huge part of, you know, writing something really great is, you know, being able to get everything down and then take a then subtract from mm-hmm. kill kill the darlings. Exactly. Kill right. your darlings, yeah. which is one of my favorite expressions. Um so I always say, you know, I am a reader. I'm not a writer. I have the greatest respect for people who can write a book because I can think of nothing more impossible. Mm-hmm. And so how much research went into making this? Like, Did you ever work in an art gallery? Maybe we should give our listeners a little bit of backstory about that. Um, so Jeff becomes obsessed. Yes. Kind of, or obsessed. Yeah, they, with, with the guy he's rescued. Rescue. Exactly. Yeah, what, what happens is um, after he's saved this, guy, this guy's life, the... the um, Lifeguards show up, then EMTs show up, and they cart the guy away. Mm-hmm. And um, and Jeff's left on the beach with uh, just a wool blanket that the lifeguard gives him. And, and then nobody comes back, So and the crowd dissipates. So he's just by himself after this um, very powerful experience. It's sort of like maybe um, to him it's almost traumatic. I would say it was traumatic. Yeah, because he, sure. he doesn't feel like he had a choice. And then, mm-hmm. there, and then there's nothing... Um, there's no follow-up mm-hmm. after it. And so he does start to wonder um, whether the guy made it and who he saved. Uh, and the guy he saved is a, an art dealer um, in Beverly Hills, a prominent art dealer. And Jeff um, 
soon uh, insinuates himself into his life. We'll put it that way yeah. without going too far down the line, which is, you know, how Jeff is an art dealer today. So, so um, are these questions that you asked yourself when you, you know, save someone's life like what kind of person's life did i save i mean was that something you ever explored or did that just come from the thinking about this novel well i'm always curious about people yeah. like who you know who's what, what's the backstory on any whoever catches my eye or my ear or whatever um in terms of the guy who was air drumming um i haven't thought about his uh his life so much but there are others um that i i was pre-med in college mm-hmm. And I worked as an EMT, and I did have some intersections with people who, um, uh, uh, some of whom made it and some of whom didn't, and and thought a lot about those people as people way after the fact. Yeah. And so in in the moment, you know, you're kind of just doing your job, and there's this weird blinders thing that that happens. Um, And it's the most important – it's not time to – decide what somebody's personality might be like when their life needs saving but you know down the line especially as you get a bit older and um have more experience have children uh that kind of stuff really makes you think and wonder about where those people are or where their families are yeah absolutely um so yes i mean jeff like insinuating himself in francis francis's life that was the person he saved um but he's also wondering if Francis is a good person. But I feel like Jeff is constantly trying to prove to himself that he is also a good person. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, so he's kind of battling with. Um, yeah, because, I mean, it, it, from one perspective, you could say, and without getting too far into the book, that Jeff is stalking this guy. For sure. Right? And, <laughs> um, and then on the other hand, the way that he tells it, it, it doesn't seem necessarily, if you if you believe what he says, that, that that's the case. Um it, one of the central questions of the book, I think, when you've shut that last page, is how much does Jeff believe his own story? Yes. And how much is he sort of painting a story for this mm-hmm. narrator who he realizes is now a writer? Um, or is he just a sort of salesman of the self? You know, is he just painting this self-serving uh, uh, self-portrait? Um, or is he just somebody who's maybe shut off to his own dark side and he doesn't notice it and he just sort of skates by on his um own sense of goodness and privilege yeah well so i mean when he starts so he starts telling our unnamed narrator um this story and he says that you know he has never told anyone this before and then he just unloads on the guy (laughs) and so you i was left there wondering i'm like is this calculated is he just been waiting on like the perfect person and then he finds that he is an author and is yeah. he hoping that he's going to like use this as material for a book yeah so then i was like well is this is antoine the narrator is no. he <laughs> no um i did get called a call to author by some publication in germany which is what this poor author is going to capitalize on or attempt to capitalize on yeah um but he um cannot sleep on airplanes and I can. I cannot. So there, it's not me. Yeah, there you I, go. I, I put that in on purpose so nobody would say it was me. I think I feel like that's a real talent, being able to sleep <laughs> on an airplane. I'm jealous of it, actually. Um, so yeah, I, so Jeff's confession, I, basically at the end, he just goes, so there you go. Mm-hmm. Do, with, do with it what you will. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, hmm, yeah. maybe, maybe he wants him to write about it. 
Well, I think Jeff has a lot of different reasons for telling the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, his reasons for ch- telling the story are slippery to some degree. They change over the course of the book, in my opinion. Yes. Um, I think it's also possible to read Jeff as a Ripley character, as a sociopath or mm-hmm. psychopath who's trying to be super uh, manipulative in and calculated in every way. That's not how I personally read him, but I'm also the only person you know, around who can't actually read this book as a reader. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't necessarily view Jeff as kind of like nefarious or like evil, you know, badly intentioned. I feel like when he first started kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, stalking Francis, I do feel like it was with a certain amount of care. Mm -hmm. Um, He really was interested uh, about this man who he saved. And it wasn't. Yeah. I mean, it was there was no I felt no evil sense of anything while I was reading that. Um, I mean, I liked Jeff. I love how he just entered the um, really highfalutin art art world just totally blind. I mean, he was ballsy, if nothing else. Yeah, he's... Yeah, he's a bit of a doofus, right, at, <laughs> at the outset. I mean, he knows he knows nothing. He knows less than nothing. And you asked about research earlier. Well, post-college, mm-hmm. I knew I was pre-med, but I decided not to apply to med school. Um, I decided I wanted to be a novelist. And so when I was looking at jobs on the job board at UCLA, I saw one that had the word books in it. So I was like... There you go. You know, right. I think... A canny person would have been like, let me go to New York or something. Uh, Instead, I just, I'm like, books, okay. And it was a fine art and rare book appraiser. And 95% of her business was fine art, which I knew very little about. No more than any kid who's gone to, you know, a handful of museums. And so I ended up getting that job. And I worked um, in the late 90s for a fine art appraiser in Beverly Hills, which is where um, a lot of this research, quote unquote, research comes from its personal experience remixed, and um, and I had similar experiences to what Jeff does in terms of that world, uh, looking at artworks that are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars or a million dollars for a mm-hmm. painting or something like that, and thinking, yes, that's the value, and then stopping to think, well, no, I mean that that's ten years of my earnings with not spending anything on anything. I couldn't afford this. Not eating. Not yeah. eating. Right. Yeah. And um, so I, I had this sort of split view of the what the value of things were. And I gained a true appreciation for contemporary post-war and contemporary art. Um, and a lot of my appreciation, my exposure to the works was in the context of auction catalogs. You know, the, the most sort of commercial, crass version of, of art. Um, and yet, some of the work just speaks for itself, you know? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, um, I worked in an art gallery for several years mm. as well. So, And there's a lot of psychology that goes along into being in the art world. Mm-hmm. I mean, pricing, you know, there's a whole thing about pricing art. And, you know, in some of these works that are, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, I mean, that's kind of set for you. And art is worth what somebody will pay for exactly. it. Exactly, yep. And people will pay a lot for um you know for a good many artists and it's just mind-boggling to me i was just down in new orleans this weekend and seeing the difference between um prices and galleries there and here i mean Mm -hmm. it's just and in los angeles there's so much money so i mean the prices are just astronomical and there's you know the money the collectors with the money to back it up so that was very interesting to me 
And I've recommended this book to my friend who owns an art gallery Mm. here. I was like, you have got to read this book. You will just eat it up. And I actually lent this book out to somebody, and I do not lend books because I'm like a psychotic book collector. I'm like, Uh oh, you might dog ear the pages or break the spine. But I was just so excited about this book. I mean, I sent like a PSA text to my um, book club, and I was just like, y'all, this is coming out on Tuesday. Y'all have got to go get it. Oh, thank you. Um, It is such a wonderful book. And so what I'm always so interested in is authors who write incredible books how does that factor into like your everyday life like what is your writing process you know you have a family Mm -hmm. so i'm always interesting to hear about people's writing schedules yeah i've got a a wife and two little career killers i'm sorry children (laughs) um wonderful children uh you know it's it's fascinating because before i had kids um I, I sort of figured out my ideal schedule, right? Which is stay up too late, reading, wake up at 9.30. And then usually I found my best creative time started at 4.30 in the afternoon. Oh, yeah, perfect. Sure. Mm-hmm. I'm not a morning person. Um, then I had kids and I, I just learned better time management and I learned uh, that 45 minutes is a very long time (laughs) when you actually are, you know, you dive all the way in and and then pop all the way out. Um, And I got a little less precious. I was never that precious, but less precious about my own mood. Yeah. Um, When it comes to writing things, I I observed a long time ago that I could be completely depressed and in no mood to write and sit down and do my day's work and then compare it to a day where I was, you know, happy or feel like like I was firing on all cylinders and then going to revise those pages I couldn't tell which was which Um, so it's kind of like it's weird in a lot of ways you got nothing to do with it you're 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 a vessel you're a vessel right right Um, and so you just have to show up Uh, so it's yeah it's just scheduling these days you know finding a happy medium I find that nothing is more difficult um, Mm -hmm. because I just want to do things when I want to do them. And, of course, having children, that is really not an option. We're, we're on their schedule for a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with, you know, the I don't even want to say the word, the current situation we've all mm. been living with for two years and having to quarantine and stuff, it, your schedule gets um, interrupted quite often. Yeah. So being flexible and... And I, I think that it, it's amazing, you know, the sort of electronic devices we have these days. I, I wrote some of this on my phone. Um, yeah, you know, but I had a Bluetooth keyboard and like a hoodie, and so nobody could um, interrupt me. I wrote some of it in the car. I mean, most of it was written, you know, at, at a desk, sort of in notebooks and then into the computer. But um, I, I would drop my son off at school and go to a coffee house that had no Wi-Fi so I could write. And then... No distractions. Yeah, no distractions. Then hit the one with Wi-Fi to yeah. do my emails and then pick him up from school. So it's just you have to... You have to become very flexible. Yes, yes. And and figure out something that works for you. So mm-hmm. I'm always so interested to hear that. Um, you know, I have a small child, and I feel like I don't have time for anything. So when somebody is able to complete a monumental task, like I feel like writing a book is, um, and have a family, um, it's just, it's very heartening. So I want to talk about... Um, your thoughts about, you know, the reception of the book. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the reviews have been pretty stellar. I mean, 
it's got to be nice after all these years of working on something and seeing you know these reviews come back and yeah the high interest in it that's uh, really yeah that's very exciting yeah you know it's very gratifying um the uh, you know the sort of i guess best thing i could ask for maybe i'm not very imaginative in this way is that people uh that, that there are people reading it who i actually don't know or mm-hmm. like not the sort of second level of people that I know, like yeah, uh, yeah, not just your family's to, reading right, this family and then their friends or something. Um, it's nice that strangers are reading my work, but also as I mentioned earlier, I'm the only person you know around who can't read it as a reader. So the most interesting thing to me, uh, in terms of reviews and responses and things like that, is just uh, it's exciting to hear people's experiences yes. uh, reading the book. And this book is, there's some things that are kind of left open or left a bit um, slippery, um, open to interpretation. And so that's really uh, exciting to hear from people, too, like um, what, what what their take is on, on these characters. Well, it's nice. You did give the reader some room. Yeah. Um, Intentionally so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that is so nice. I mean, because some books, you know, they just tie it all up in a neat boat, and it's over. So mm-hmm. you you have some – the reader is left with something to really think about after this book is over. I mean, I, I hate to use such a cliche, but this book is like a, is a stick of dynamite. I mean, it is, you know – it's That's, such a nice size, and you know it's very accessible, and it just it packs a major punch. And um, I swear I'm not saying this to um, you know blow smoke up your skirt, as they say. I mean I can't remember the last time I read something that I enjoyed so much. Wow, thank you. I went into Lemuria afterwards, and John Evans will probably kill me for saying this, but it is rare that he gets super excited about a fiction, uh, you know, like a fiction book. He reads a lot of nonfiction. He was like, wasn't it just so fresh? I mean, it just, oh, great. God, it was so good. And I was like, it really, really was. I want to just start it all back over again. I like the I like the stick of dynamite. I've had a few people, actually many, many people use this sort of like eating metaphors, like mm-hmm. I gobbled it right up or I slurped mm-hmm. it or all this sort of stuff. And I, I'm like, you know, that's fine. You can use those metaphors. Yeah. It's sort of a little strange to me. But now that you've called it a stick of dynamite, now I can picture these people eating a stick of dynamite. There and that's you go. going to make me really yeah. so I, as smile. I, as I've told everybody, I devoured it. I devoured, <laughs> a, devoured stick a, of, a stick of, of dynamite. dynamite. So absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, um, do you have anything you want to close out with? Anything you want readers to know or our listeners? Um not really. You know, actually, I'll, I'll tell you a random thing that yes. happened the other day that just cracked me up. I, I So I've been watching this Succession. Um, oh. Yeah, so the third season, I think it was, just uh, ended. And I realized, thank goodness I didn't name my main character Greg because I, Jeff is kind of a cousin Greg. <laughs> So I have a confession. I'm actually like saving succession until oh. I really need it. Oh, yes. So, but I do, I have watched the first few episodes of it. So I know the main characters. Um, I always think if I have another child, I want to name her Shiv because oh, yeah. that's just like <laughs> Siobhan. That's like the greatest name ever. But yeah, I'm saving succession until okay. I really, really need it. But much to one of my friends' chagrin, he is just disgusted with me that I'm not all caught up on that. But yeah. That's been a huge show. And I, are you a devourer of a, a, another, again, are you just a major watcher of television? No. You're not? No, like a, a medium watcher of television. And then, um, I don't know, I, I, I signed up for the Criterion Collection, so I just oh. watch these, you know, I'll stay up too late watching 
uh, Criterion movies. Yeah. Stuff like that. But yeah. um, in terms of that binge watching and series, I'm not usually up on um, most of them. Usually just one. That's at good. A time, yeah. I think that's good. Well, one more thing. Mm-hmm. Who are some of your favorite authors? Um, I would say probably my favorite right now is Javier Marias, mm-hmm. uh, Spanish writer. Um, and I, I've just been blown away by his work. And um, let's see, who else can we throw in the mix? Patrick Modiano, mm-hmm. the French writer. Yeah. So this, this book... Um, the other, the Sacrificial Twin book uh, had, was maybe Modiano infused, and some drafts of this book were probably Marias infused, and I, there may be one Marias-like sentence left in it, but uh, those are both authors that I feel like I've really bathed in, in, in the best possible way. Well, I think it's, um, to be a, you know, authors have to read, mm-hmm. you know, that's part of uh, most authors I've ever discussed. I mean, that's part of their, re- their process is reading, just reading kind of as much as you can. And oh, I yeah. think that's, sounds like a pretty good situation to me, but I know it's grueling, um, to write, but also, you know, a great joy. Yeah. It, it, it I just try to have as much amnesia about it as possible. <laughs> It's like childbirth. Yes. You know? oh my, yes, it's, it's it, right. You've birthed a baby, yes, and that's the sure. thing about, you know, it's totally horrible in the moment. And yeah. then as the further you get away from it, you're like, well, that wasn't that bad. I'm let's do it again. And that's, how, <laughs> that's how people keep coming into the world and books keep getting written. Yep, yep. So, well, thank you so much, Antoine. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Everybody go buy this book from your local independent bookseller, and you will not be sorry, I can assure you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's a delight to be here in Mississippi. And um, we hope you eat some good food while you're here. Oh, I hope so, too. All right. (laughs) Thank you, everybody. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party.